0: Enjoy. We've been talking about is learning to recognize God's activity in the world around us, which is a quest that humanity has been on forever. Throughout human history, People in civilizations all over the world have hypothesized and speculated and wondered about what was causing some of the happenings and the events in nature that they couldn't easily explain. Humans have wondered what's causing these major weather events, what's causing droughts, what's causing volcanoes, what's causing earthquakes. Civilizations all over the world have adopted theories about the otherworldly drama and the decisions that must be being made somewhere out there that are influencing mortal life on earth. And in the midst of all of that searching and speculating, the world's religious systems and philosophies have suggested answers suggested that the spiritual forces, the supernatural forces that are impacting human behavior and determining outcomes must work like this. Some of those philosophies and religious systems speak about karma. Some speak about fate, some refer to the experience of luck, and some people refer to a person's destiny. But in every culture in the world, you will find teaching about how a human's behavior corresponds to the fortune or the misfortune that they experience because of the influence of some unseen force, some unseen power that's at work all around us. But Christianity, the faith that we embrace and embody, this faith makes a claim about the spiritual world that is altogether different from any other faith or philosophy. Christianity contends that there is a spiritual realm beyond what we can see, and Christianity claims that the supreme divine being, who we call God, actually cares for the well-being of humanity. Christianity claims that the force that is out there, the being that is out there, the power that is out there knows your name, knows your story, and cares about your well-being and cares about you individually and cares about us collectively. Christianity claims that God sees humans not as pawns in some big cosmic game, but as partners in managing and stewarding God's good creation. We believe that God values us. Loves us and invites us to participate with God in projects of creation and restoration. And this faith that we have, this faith that we proclaim and espouse, it's built upon this conviction that says we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to imagine what God is like or what God is up to because God paid humanity a visit in bodily form and told us. We believe, we believe that for a short window of time, the Creator donned a human body and walked the earth among us, demonstrating compassion and kindness, peacefulness and patience in the person of Jesus Christ. Of Nazareth, And we are here as fortunate recipients of eyewitness reports from people who knew Jesus personally. We are fortunate recipients, and we have firsthand accounts and unified, cohesive testimony from multiple witnesses about what it was like to interact with God in a body. But in spite of all of that, in spite of being the recipients of that gift of historical record and testimony from eyewitnesses, in spite of all of that, in these modern times when Jesus is not here in the flesh for us to see and hear and smell and touch, interaction with God continues to prove to be a profound challenge. Even though, God, even though Jesus assured us that God is actively working for our good, and even though Jesus promised that people who believe will never be abandoned, the fact remains that we are finite humans with severe limitations trying to detect and understand the actions of an all-powerful, all-knowing being. And, we're, and so we struggle. And one of these days, one of these days we'll have perfect clarity about eternal realities, but not today, not yet. We are required today to walk by faith and not to walk by what we can see. And oftentimes... Oftentimes as we try to walk by faith and as we try to pay attention and as we try to imagine what God might have in store for us and figure out God's will and God's ways, we can get it wrong and we can make mistakes. But one of the claims of God and one of the claims of this series is that God is not trying to keep you in the dark. God is not trying to withhold from you. God is not trying to keep you from understanding what God wants from you. In fact, this entire series of messages has been about some of the steps that we can take, some of the practices that we can adopt that will help us perceive what God's up to. And today we wrap up the series. But as we wrap up, we've got to talk about the things that we have to tune out. We got to take an opportunity, we got to take a minute to talk about tuning out the conflicting voices, tuning out the noise, tuning out the negative narratives that can actually keep us from noticing God's direct action in our lives. You know, I've noticed, and I'm sure you've had this same experience sometimes. I'll be, you know, in the checkout line at the grocery store next to somebody else, or I'll be sitting at one of my kids' ball games on the bleachers there, and I'll look over and notice that this person standing next to me or sitting next to me has earbuds in their ears, one or or sometimes both ears, even in the midst of having a face-to-face conversation. Maybe they're talking to the cashier, or they're talking to me, or they're yelling at the umpire, or whatever it is. And I realize that some people love to listen to music all day, and I suspect some people probably use those earbuds to tune out some of the parts of the world around them that they would rather ignore. But on more than one occasion, I've had the experience where I thought somebody was talking to me, and it turns out later they were having a conversation with somebody I couldn't see, right? They were, they were having a conversation with somebody on the other end of the line through their earbuds, and I thought that suddenly they were having a conversation with me, and I started to respond, or I did respond, and then I was the one who looked silly. Sometimes I'll try speaking to someone who's wearing earbuds, and I'm wondering the whole time, can they hear me at all? Do, do I need to speak up, or would they rather I just stop talking altogether? And what I can't tell is, what are they listening to the rest, that the rest of us can't hear? What's the background noise that's influencing every other interaction that they have? And I wonder who or what is, is getting their attention. Is it, are they listening to a podcast? Is it, is it white noise? Is it loud music? And, and this is the reflective, spiritual question that I want us to be asking of ourselves as we engage a passage of Scripture together this morning. The question is this, what voices are we giving our attention to while God is trying to speak to us? What are the voices that have our focus? What are the influences that are getting our attention while God is speaking and acting in our midst? And if God is doing something around us, are we prepared? Are we ready? Are we looking so that we would even recognize it? Because sometimes we can miss what's right in front of us. And so today, as we open up the Scripture together, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to open up your own Bible. You can turn on your uh, Bible app or the Heritage app on your phone. We will put these passages up on the screen this morning, but we're going to cover a long, lengthy narrative section of Scripture, and we're not going to have time to read the entire thing. We're going to do kind of a flyover of a long chapter and a half in the book of John. And so we're going to be in that fourth book of the New Testament portion of your Bible. The book of John is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to be in John chapter 9. This is a story that takes place during one of the craziest days in Jesus' life. And that's saying something because Jesus had some unusual days. But this is a story that takes place over the course of one day in Jesus' life while he was in Jerusalem for a Jewish religious festival. And while he was there, Jesus did something that only God could do. But what, what I want us to pay attention to is how everybody else reacted to what Jesus did. Here's where we're starting. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And Jesus's disciples, his followers, the people who were traveling with him, learning from him, You know, working with him, his followers, his disciples said, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned so that this man was born blind? Was it this man's sin that caused him to be born blind or was it the sin of his parents? Now, right off the bat, you can probably imagine that this question raises some thorny theological issues. It was thorny in the the moment it was asked, and it's thorny for us as we think about it today. These disciples are looking at somebody. Presumably, this man is, is sitting on the ground begging for help from people who are passing by, and these disciples are looking at this person who's disabled or differently abled, and from the time this person was born, It's been like that. And so the disciples are wondering to themselves, and their immediate assumption is that this kind of disability, this kind of different ability could only be the result of somebody's sin against God, somebody's violation of God's command. And the disciples are wondering, well, who who did it? Who was the person that messed up? Who was the person who was sinful enough to cause this to happen? Did this happen? Like, did this man, was he born so sinful that he came out of the womb not being able to see? Or is he being punished for the the failures of some of the people in his ancestry? And the implications of their question are kind of staggering for us. I mean, the implications of their question might raise the ire of modern parents who have differently abled children. But the disciples, I want you to know the disciples were simply reciting the same assumptions about God that a lot of us make every day because we are inclined to believe that this is the way the universe works. We are inclined to believe that the world works like a moral vending machine where what you receive is directly correlated to what you put in. So if you do something good, you get a reward. And if you do something bad, you receive a punishment. This is a common worldview even today. And this is a worldview that says something profound about the nature and the character of God. In this moment, as these disciples were looking at this man who had struggled and suffered for so much of his life, as he was he's an adult by this point, it's as if the disciples are walking around with one earbud in, and they're hearing a resonating reminder, a, re- a resonating voice that says, Remember, God is a God of justice. And so whatever hardship people experience in this life, it must be the result of something that they did to deserve it. This is the narrative that the disciples are hearing, playing based on their experience and their understanding of God. This is the message that they believe is true about the Heavenly Father. This is the message that they believe explains why this man was born blind. But I want you to know Jesus contradicts this message. The disciples were looking at this man and seeing a person who was under the judgment of God, but Jesus looked at this man and saw someone who was in prime position to receive God's blessing. The disciples looked at this situation and they determined that God had already acted decisively and done what needed to be done. And Jesus, on the other hand, saw a situation that was waiting for God to intervene. And that's exactly what happens next. Chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus answered to his disciples, neither he nor his parents caused his blindness with their sin. This happened, he says, so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. And then Jesus proceeds with this metaphorical statement. He says, while it's daytime, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, but while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is telling his disciples, there is no darkness where my light can't make a difference. Jesus is telling his followers, don't assume that this is a closed case. Don't assume that this is a finished project because the reality is that I have shown up so that I can bring hope to this man's life. And that's what happens in the next verse. Verse 6, after Jesus said this, he spit on the ground. You have to picture this. He spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva and he smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Now I got to tell you, I've read through all sorts of different commentaries and explanations about ideas about why Jesus did this and the very short answer is we don't know. Um, you know, we our, our best guess is that maybe Jesus was wanting the man to respond with some kind of a step of obedience, because here's what Jesus asks the man to do. Jesus said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man went away and washed, and when he returned, he could see. When he came back from doing the simple thing that Jesus asked him to do, his life and his vision were totally changed. His vision was restored for the first time in his life. Now for this man who was born blind, This must have been the best day of his life. But over the course of the rest of this chapter, the remaining verses in this passage, John's going to tell us about three different groups of people who could not reconcile what they saw happen to this man with what they believed about God. And it caused dissonance for them because the message that they were hearing told them this is not how God works. John's going to tell us about different communities of people who saw a man from their community that they had assumed was cursed by God. They had already written him off as somebody that God had given up on, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, because Jesus showed up, it suddenly appears that this man, out of all of them, is the most blessed, and they don't know what to do with it. John starts telling us about the man's neighbors and the people that he would encounter on an everyday basis. Verses 8 through 12 of chapter 9 tell us about this almost comical conversation in which all of the man's neighbors argue about whether that's really him or not. Some of the neighbors are saying, look, our friend, he can see and all of the other some of the other neighbors are saying, "Nah, that's impossible. It that can't be him. That's got to be a doppelganger. That's got to be somebody that looks like him. You've gotten confused. That's not really the same guy." They're they're used to they've recognized him as the man who used to sit and beg in their in their neighborhood, but there are others who are saying, "Nah, you've got the wool pulled over your eyes. That's just somebody who looks like him." They are staring proof in the face. They're looking directly at the evidence that God in the flesh has just worked a miracle among them, but it left them so confused and so perplexed that they talked themselves out of believing what their eyes were telling them. These neighbors had been around this man for so long, been around this blind man's situation for so long that they weren't mentally ready to accept a new reality. They could only accept what they could predict. They could only accept what they could anticipate. It's as if all of this man's neighbors were walking around with an earbud in their ear, and they were hearing this recurring message that says, God doesn't work like that. That's not the kind of thing that you should expect from God. That's not how things operate in this world. They're stuck in these old paradigms, and there's no room in their spiritual imaginations for God to do anything new. There's no room for God to do anything unexpected. But the neighbors weren't the only ones who were fooled, because eventually they were so worked up and perplexed by this that they took the formerly blind man— To go to the synagogue and visit their religious leaders, these men that they called the Pharisees to report to them what had happened. And the Pharisees, these people who are supposed to be on the lookout for what God is doing in their midst, they questioned this man about what happened to him, but I want you to know they were not at all fascinated. They weren't excited, they didn't celebrate, they didn't say congratulations, they didn't say good for you. They, didn't, they couldn't bring themselves to celebrate his newfound vision because they were so busy scrutinizing and critiquing the way that God brought it about. What you have to know about the Pharisees is that they were so precise in their enforcement of the details of religious law that they felt obligated to take offense at what Jesus had done. Because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath day, this special religious day when nobody was supposed to do any work, they felt obligated to take offense. Now, this Sabbath violation thing, this feels foreign to us in our culture 2000 years later in the Western hemisphere. But for the Pharisees in that day, this was the litmus test. How you know that somebody takes God seriously And they believed that Jesus had violated God's law by helping someone on that specific day, and so they weren't willing to concede that Jesus might be doing what God had in mind. You see, the Pharisees got their status and their prestige from telling other people what God wanted, from telling other people this is who God is and this is how God operates. They got their social standing by defining sin and deciding who was in and who was out. And here's Jesus doing it totally different. And Jesus is a threat to their power. And so as these Pharisees looked at this man who once was blind, but now he can see, it's as if they have an earbud in one ear that keeps reminding them, if this story is true, If what looks like it happened really happened to this man, it's going to call into question everything that you think you know about God. It's going to change the game. It's going to change the rules. It's going to move the goalposts. So don't let this story get any traction or all of your status goes away. And so rather than celebrating what God had done, the Pharisees tried to just discredit the people who were involved. They tried to discredit everybody who was a part of this story. In fact, their very next step was the Pharisees sent a messenger out and said, bring back the parents of this man who was born blind. We want them to tell us the history of this case. We want them to tell us the details. Was he really 100% blind, or are we just talking about like he had a, a vision impairment? Tell us about all of the details of what it was like when he was growing up. Tell us about what he, what he was like before this encounter with Jesus, and then explain to us what you think happened today to your son. They brought in these parents... But the parents were afraid to speak up. The, the parents were afraid to tell the truth, even though they believed their son, even though they were celebrating with their son, they were afraid to tell the truth about what their son had experienced because of what it might cost them in the community John says that the the man's parents were afraid of being expelled from the synagogue, afraid of being kicked out of the spiritual community because of expressing any faith in Jesus. And if you were kicked out of the synagogue, that would be the same as being blacklisted in the entire community. And so these parents, even on the day of their son's great celebration, they dodged the question. It's as if the parents had an earbud in one ear that kept reminding them over and over a message that said, don't rock the boat, don't get too excited, don't try to change anybody's mind, don't try to tell anybody anything new, and their loyalty and their sense of being stuck in this religious system, it prevented them from being able to acknowledge or celebrate what God had done for their family. That day. Now, at this point, we've talked about these four different groups of people. We've talked about the disciples, we've talked about the neighbors, we've talked about the Pharisees, we've talked about the parents. All of these people who ought to have been at the forefront of the crowd celebrating the healing of this man who was born blind. But now we've talked about how each of these groups of people had their own hang ups that kept them from accurately perceiving what God was up to. But there's one story we haven't talked about yet. It's the story of the man himself. The story of the man who was born blind. We haven't talked yet about the roller coaster of emotions that he experienced over the course of just a few hours as at first he received sight for the first time in his life, but then over the next few minutes and hours he experienced abandonment from all of the people in his life who were close to him. Everybody in his life who knew his name and knew his story and knew his situation suddenly didn't want to have anything to do with him. His neighbors doubted him. His spiritual leaders interrogated and disparaged him. His parents deserted him at his moment of need just to salvage their own reputation in the community. In fact, this story goes on, and in verses 24 through 34, it says that this man, simply because he told his story... Simply because he told what happened to him, he ends up being expelled from the synagogue. He's blacklisted from his community, blacklisted by the people who should have been celebrating with him. His entire life changed. Everything was turned upside down, but here's what I need you to notice. Here's the part of this story that makes this so profound for us. What you need to notice is that even though this man was discredited by his neighbors, disfellowshipped by his spiritual leaders, and ditched by his parents, what we discover at the end of John chapter 9 is that this man who was abandoned by all of his community was actually never left alone. What we discover at the end of this chapter is that when this man was expelled from his community, he found jesus or rather jesus found him there on the outside away from everybody else here's what verse 35 says chapter 9 verse 35 of john jesus heard jesus heard that they had expelled the man born blind and finding him Now stop there for a second because I'm not sure that you could find two consecutive words in Scripture that are as easy to just gloss over and as weighty with meaning. Jesus heard that this man had lost all of his community and Jesus found him. This is the same Jesus you remember who taught us What does a good shepherd do when they have a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing? A good shepherd leaves the 99, not in the safety of the sheep pen, not in the safety of a fenced-in area, leaves the 99 in the open country, Jesus says, to go and find the one who was lost. This is what good shepherds do. This is who Jesus is. And so don't skip over these two words. When Jesus heard that they had expelled the man born blind from their spiritual community, Jesus went and found him. And Jesus said, Do you believe? Do you believe in the human one? Now, your translation may say something different. Your translation probably says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And whichever way your translation says it, it's a challenging phrase for us to interpret from the original languages. But what Jesus is referring to is a set of Old Testament prophecies that promised that one day God was going to send a person who was empowered and endowed with heavenly authority and divine authority to act on God's behalf. The Old Testament said there will be a person who embodies the goodness and the wisdom and the justice and the fairness and the compassion and the kindness and the patience and the peacefulness and the love of God. There will be a person who shows up in God's name to accomplish God's purposes among God's people. And Jesus is asking this man, do you believe those prophecies? Do you believe those promises? Do you believe that God, who made those promises all those centuries ago, is trustworthy? Do you believe that God can act in ways that are better and bigger than you've ever predicted or ever imagined? And verse 36 says, the man says, who is the human one? Who who is the son of man, sir? I I want to believe in him. And Jesus' reply, Jesus says, you have seen him. Y'all, the list of the things that this man has seen in his lifetime, you could write it down on the palm of your hand. He hasn't seen much. He's only been seeing for a couple of hours at this point. He hasn't seen much of anything, but Jesus says, you've seen the Son of Man. You've seen the answer to God's promise. You've seen the fulfillment of the prophecy. You have seen the goodness of God in the flesh. In fact, Jesus says, he is the one that's speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, which is different than healer, and it's different than savior, and it's different than prophet. He says, Lord, the one who gets to decide for my life. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. Now you got to know, you've only heard just a few moments, a couple of hours of the story of this man's life, but you got to know that he experienced a lot of spiritual growth in just a couple of hours that day. He went from the early moments in this passage referring to Jesus just as a man that he didn't know to later saying, I think he must be a prophet. And then declaring in front of people, hey, he's got to be a man sent from God. And now here at the end of the chapter, he's referring to Jesus as Lord, even though nobody else in the community agreed with him. Nobody else in the community could see it. Nobody else in the community could understand because the voices that they were listening to were saying, that's impossible. The voices that they were tuned into were saying God can't work like that. But this man, all alone in his conviction, all alone in his confession, all alone in his worship, he kept on moving forward towards Jesus, kept his eyes on Jesus, and it was all because of one thing. It was because he could not deny what he had experienced himself. You go back just a few verses and you read his explanation To the Pharisees who were interrogating him in verse 25, the man said, I don't know who he is. I don't know whether he's a sinner or a saint. I don't know whether he's a prophet or a problem. Here's what I do know. I know that I was blind and now I can see. This is his story. And at the end, after that confession and after that moment of worship, Jesus tells this man something profound about what happened that day and something profound that speaks to you and me in our situation. Chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, I have come into the world to exercise judgment so that those who don't see can see and so that those who see will become blind now that's that's a heavy statement and you got to wade through that one a little bit you got to let that one marinate you know you got to chew on that a bit but in this statement Jesus is letting us in on a secret of spiritual growth and this is not just a secret that applies to the ancient people 2,000 years ago this is a secret that applies to you Jesus is letting us in on a secret for spiritual growth, a secret of discernment. Jesus is saying, God makes it possible for people to see when they admit their blindness. God makes it possible for people to see when they acknowledge their need for God's help. But for those who think they don't need God's help, for those who feel like they've got it all figured out, For those who think think they've got God kind of boxed in and hemmed in and fenced in and they know where the limits and the boundaries are and they know how God operates and they know what to expect and they know who's in and they know who's out. For the people who feel like they see things so clearly, Jesus says those are the people who are going to miss what's really going on. Those are the people who are going to miss it. Those are the people who won't be able to see it all even though they feel like they're capturing the entire image so vividly. Those are the people for whom the voices that are resonating in their spiritual hearts and their spiritual imaginations are actually going to create interference and keep them from being able to discern what God is up to. God says, Jesus says, it's the people who know that they need help. It's the people who know their own blindness, the people who know their own frailty, the people who know their own weakness, and who say, God, I need your help. It's those people that God has promised to reveal himself to. And so what's that mean for you? What's that mean for you as you go about this life day-to-day trying to think, God, I want to do what you want me to do. I mean, I want to be about your plan. I, I know you've put me in these situations and this family and this community and this school and this job workplace. I know you've put me in these places for reasons. What do you want me to do? What's it mean for you? God's asking for you to be the kind of person who would let him open your eyes. God's asking for you to be the kind of person who would let him open your ears and have your attention. God's asking for you to expand your spiritual imagination, to start letting yourself believe that God could be bigger than you've imagined yet, that God could be better than you've dared to dream, that God could be more generous than you even thought possible, that grace really could be more expansive than seems reasonable. God's asking you to believe that you don't yet know, you haven't yet seen, you haven't yet plumbed or realized the boundaries of God's goodness and God's love. And on your best days, On your best days, you'll come to realize that that goodness and love expands far enough to reach you. And if it expands that far, then it expands far enough to reach the people who hate you, the people you dislike. It expands far enough to reach your enemies, the people who have hurt you, God's asking you not to let the limits of your history of spiritual information and education, not to let the limits of your spiritual community define how far God can go to work in your life. God's asking you not to set your expectations based on what somebody told you in the past, but to stand on the shoulders of what God has done in your past and let God lead the way. God's inviting you to a story that's full of transformation. Not the kind that the preacher can predict for you, but the kind that you can only find when God opens your eyes.